This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Wire. The Boston Celtics select Jason Tatum from Duke University. Round of the break for the Celtics. Goes around the world. Oh, the circus game in the Boston. Walker for three. Kemba Walker from downtown. Tatum drives down and throws it down. Wow. Rebound. Gordon Hayward for two. Gordon Hayward with a corner crash. No block out. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We are brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm. I'm the Celtics beat writer for MassLive.com. I'm joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. Nicole, how are you? Pretty good, Tom. I'm in Connecticut, which is where I'm from, and it's very humid here. I'm sure it's similar in Massachusetts. So today was like the absolute worst. We're recording this on a Wednesday late afternoon. Today was just like the absolute worst kind of day because it was hot, and then it rained, and then it stopped raining. And now it's just hot and all humid from all the rain. So my house has one room with air conditioning. So the rest of the house is just being left up to the humidity. And then me and my son and my dog are all packed into our uh, tiny, <laughs> tiny bedroom here. So how's this for a transition? Even more humid right now, I would assume, is Florida, which is where the NBA plans to restart its season in Orlando, even though... Florida's numbers right now for coronavirus are absolutely skyrocketing. Like it is obscene, the numbers that we're starting to get out of Florida right now in terms of new cases, in terms of percentage of positive tests, at the risk of sounding like the most broken record of all time. Nicole, what do you think about the NBA restarting in a place where coronavirus cases are absolutely skyrocketing right now? I mean, it's not surprising, right? Like they were in way too deep even if they wanted to call it off or even if they thought about calling it off, they're just in too deep at this point. The Raptors are already there because they're coming from Canada. So they have to quarantine for a little bit longer. So they're already in Florida. And I mean, it just seems like positive tests after positive tests keep coming out, which is just funny because now, again, funny isn't the right word, but it's just like maybe ironic that, okay, let's bring people from a bunch of different states to the highest like hotspot. The NBA is like, all right, we're going to the epicenter. Yeah. I mean, it's not great, but I still think that it's possible that they will be able to get games off. Malcolm Brogdon did test positive. Nikola Jokic tested positive. So for a while, they were keeping the names private after the initial wave. So, I mean, it's all just a very, I don't know if surreal is the right word, because usually, at least when I use it, I mean it in a positive way, but it's just all a very like bizarre situation, but they're going full steam ahead. Like I want to shout out actually Sam Amick of The Athletic, who I thought had a story today that had four of some of the most telling quotes that I've seen, like all in one article. The first one he had right away, he said one GM told him that if cases keep spiking, things are going to happen. I'm really, really concerned for the league, big picture wise in many ways. So I thought that was interesting because it underscored the importance of this whole scenario for the league. Like if this doesn't happen, really bad things are going to happen, which is why they've been pushing ahead with it, even though like this is clearly a horrible idea from any kind of public health perspective. But I think that's why both sides are still pushing forward because it's not like the league doesn't know this is a bad idea. Of course they know this is a bad idea. It's not like the players don't know this is a bad idea. Of course they know, or at least, you know, (laughs) the ones who haven't been playing pickup. Those players know that this, you know, is a bad idea, but like they're going to keep going with it. And it's because of like the financial realities of, you know, somewhere north of $900 million lost just in TV revenue that they could, you know, hang on to by pulling this off. So I just thought that was one of of the really telling quotes in this article. 
I also thought it was interesting seeing a, another GM tell Sam Amick that they believe that they're safer in the Orlando campus given all the precautions. It's not really a risk to the players within the bubble, or at least the spike is not like a risk to the players in the bubble. It's, it's just a risk to Orlando and that this bubble should keep it out. And I don't think I necessarily agree with that because of the workers who are going to be coming in and out. I, I, I take some issue with that, but I think that that also kind of does explain what some of the perspective might be. Right, like in a vacuum, what he's saying is correct. Right. Like, yes, if you keep this bubble, if you quarantine everyone, if everyone follows the quarantine, if everyone truly does stick to the bubble, 1,000%, he's right. Technically, if there's no contact with the city of Orlando itself, yeah, he's right. But like you said, the workers don't seem to be in the bubble and the workers are going to be going in and out of the bubble. And so it's just a matter of how strong the bubble actually is and I think I saw somebody say it was more like a mesh hat so that means that there will I believe be that was uh, Tom Haberstrow of NBC Sports Boston who had that yep there will be contact with the city of Orlando there is a risk there but I think theoretically speaking yeah what he's saying is true but it's just yeah. like okay actually in practice I don't know how realistic that is well and that so <laughs> that brings me to the last quote that I thought was really telling from this like a GM told Amic that there's a lot of uncertainty. I know all the proper measures are being taken, but there's still a lot of unknown. You know and I know why we are playing, for the money. If not that, do you think we'd really be playing? I get it, and I'm in, but with hesitation. And I was just like, that, I think that is the best summation. And I, I thought it was fascinating that even, like, anonymously, a GM was willing to say that because... I mean, no matter how... This. Yeah, you can't, like... It's too big to ignore at this point. Yeah. And I get why the money's important to them though you know what i mean like it makes sense both in the short term and in the long term to be focused on money i mean they're a business like obviously they're going to be focused on money it's just okay at what cost and not only are they focused on money but like their workers are so well paid that for the workers it's worth it to take some risk like you hear from like bartenders in states that are reopening definitely too soon um that they're terrified and for them i doubt that it is worth it even like a good night bartending a good night bartending is a lucrative job but it's not the kind of money that you would be necessarily willing to risk your life for you know i'm not necessarily like these players obviously they are all very healthy they're young they are not in the high risk pool but the amount of money that they're talking about is like life-changing generational money and i get why that might be worth the risk to you. Like, I, I do understand that. And especially, it, it kind of runs down the spectrum, right? Because like, there's the role players who don't know how much longer they might be in the league, and they're trying to cash in as many paychecks as they can. There's the young guys who haven't gotten a max contract yet who might, you know, your Jason Tatum's, like even your Zion Williamson's, like guys who are going to be affected down the road by a lower salary cap. Anything to get that number up, I get it. You know, and the same thing with like an Anthony Davis, who's definitely going to get another max contract. Yeah, like I, you know, if I was him, I would also want to generate as much revenue as possible now so that in the future I could get a bigger paycheck. But I don't know. Um, I think that's why this is all so complicated is because you can't even really point to a a certain group of people who, you know, aside from the essential workers, like cleaners and everybody who are going to be going in, you can't really point to one group that's like, hey, this group doesn't want to play, but they're being taken advantage of. Like, that's not really what's going on here. It's a bunch of people with huge financial investments and huge financial stakes in this who want this to continue because they want to preserve those financial uh, incentives. And, and I get that, but man, it's just, it just feels really risky. And, and everybody, seems to, everybody seems to be on the same page that it's risky, which I think is one of the weirdest things about this. Like they all know, but they're all going to go ahead with it anyway. So I feel like if the league went forward with the 16 playoff teams, I would entertain the idea of like, you can't blame the league for trying because they do have the means to create a bubble, how successful that bubble is, we'll see, but they do have the means to create this bubble and maybe get this product off and maybe recoup money in a time that like, everybody is struggling financially and in a time that they sort of have like a moment, you know what I mean? Like they really could maybe pull something off. There's a moment house. (laughs) So like, you know, I wouldn't fault them there for trying. And it sounds like, especially after reading the handbook that they gave to players, it sounds like they are really trying to institute different policies and things like the ring or whatever, how scientific that is. I don't know, but they're trying, you know what I mean? They're really trying. But it's like, okay, the fact that they're bringing 22, it's like we're pushing it too far. It's like if you did go with the bare minimum, though, it's like, okay, I don't blame you because I bet like, 
I was going to say, like, I bet like anybody, if they could have a presumably safe environment, would love to go back to work and start earning a paycheck and just like get the economy going. You know, anything, anything that like sort of resembles normalcy in a safe way. Like, yeah, like I'm sure people would be down or I'm sure there's like a, a segment of people that would be down. So I don't blame the league in that sense, but it's like, okay, why are we bringing 22 teams? Are the Phoenix Suns just invited so that way you could also invite the Washington Wizards so that way it wouldn't look like there was such a strong disparity between the Eastern and the Western conferences? You know what I mean? Like there's just so many other questions where you can just poke holes through their plans. But like obviously you get why they're coming back like they're a business. Just to to what you said about like people wanting to get back to work. Like this is one of the things that actually drives me nuts about the conversation is that people claim that those of us who want you know, everything to be very careful and to, and to be very controlled when people do start going back to work, that people think that like those people who think that, who, you know, are supportive of very stringent, you know, precautions and all that, that like we are somehow anti the economy, anti business. And it's just like, nah, dude, like (laughs) the sooner we get this under control, the sooner like people can go back to work, the sooner that like jobs like this can start happening. So that was just something that's been driving me nuts and kind of speaks to that. But yeah, I mean, of course, like, I think these guys want to get back to it. Because the other thing about, you know, most players in the NBA is that they also love basketball. Like, I'm, yeah. you know, how can you blame them for that? Like, I I also love basketball. Like, I love hooping. Like, I, even in the early days of the virus, when everything was shut down, like, every time I drove by a park near my house, I would see people out there playing, and I'd be like, man, come on. Like, I, I'm probably going to be okay if I go play, right? And then I would have to remind myself, like, no, dude, like, don't do that. Not only do they want to get back to their jobs, they want to get back to doing this, you know, really important, really, like, fun, really rewarding thing that they do for a living. Like, that makes sense to me. Right. I mean, they love, like, they love it. Like, that's how I feel about some, like, daily, like, mundane, stupid activities. I'm like, man, I really miss going to, like, restaurants. <laughs> like, I mi- sure. really miss going yeah. to, like, Soul Cycle. Like, that's so stupid. And it's like, no, these guys have given their life to basketball. They all, most of them, love, like, love basketball, like, more than we could ever really imagine or, like, comprehend. You know what I mean? And they're all also so competitive that, of course, they want to be out there. Like, I don't blame them, but it's just, I don't know. It's, it's so hard to wrap your head around it. And if, I guess I will say at this point though, I will not be surprised if we do get to the point of the games and they already have to shut it down. Cause at that point, but, yeah, yeah, they'll be in the bubble for like two and a half weeks. They should have a good understanding of tests at that point. And I wouldn't be surprised if the number of positive tests is just too much. Like, I don't think I or anybody else who isn't in like league meetings and who hasn't like sat down with spreadsheets. I don't think that we have necessarily wrapped our heads around the implications of that possibility. It's just going to be a completely different landscape. If that happens on the one hand, it's like, you're talking about like human lives here, like that, you know, matters a lot more. And of course that's, that's the case, but this is going to be just a completely league altering thing. Like they need to pull this off. It's going to be a nerve-wracking few weeks here for the league. I, I think that, you know, and, and it's crazy too because we're talking about, like, the league is supposed to start on July 30. That's so far yeah. away still, you know. No, exactly. That's why I wouldn't be surprised if we don't even make it. Yeah. I mean, game. either that or, like, maybe by that point, Florida has kind of gotten things under control. Like, when you look back at May 24, you know, Massachusetts was improving, but it wasn't in this, like, really good stage where we find ourselves now where, like, the rate of infection is really low. Like our positive case numbers are dropping, like deaths around the country are dropping, which is really like good to see. Like, so, I mean, maybe by July 30, this all looks really different. I hope that's the case. Like, I, I hope that you know, things are improving and I, I think mean, that's possible. And that's the thing is if you just look at it on the purely optimistic side, there is enough time to get this under right. control. And the coronavirus is as far as we know, something that if you follow the necessary precautions, you can actually like contain it and make a difference. So it'll be fascinating to see what happens. I I certainly think this is going to happen still. Yeah, Um, I I, I could see scenarios in which it doesn't. But I mean, between the money and between just the fact that like, it isn't necessarily about getting new viewers or anything like that. It is just like they need to fulfill these TV contracts because like, it's almost a billion dollars in revenue that that could fulfill. One other thing from Sam Amick's story that I thought was sort of interesting is that Brad Stevens has been consistently pushing for the league to reconsider its ruling that staff member families aren't allowed. And Brad, as 
some of you probably know, has a 14-year-old son and a 10-year-old daughter. And in the few times that we've spoken to Brad, he's, I think, been gushing about the time that he spent with his family. He's, he says that they might get sick of him, but he doesn't. And especially as like a coach who is on the road and probably doesn't get to spend that much time with his children, like this probably has been a great opportunity for him. And I don't think that, I mean, for anybody spending three months away from your family is difficult, but I'm sure for Brad, just being alone, completely alone for three months has got to be hard, especially when he knows his family's just in Boston quarantining too. For sure. I I don't have a teenage kid, uh, but I also can imagine too how like when you get to, as somebody with a three-year-old, like I can imagine when, when, you know, kids get to be Brady's age, I'm sure Brad is kind of counting down the years that he's still got you know, left with Brady under his roof. And so I'm sure he probably wants to get in as much time as he can, which isn't easy when you're an NBA coach. I, I do wonder if, if his kids would want to be. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I know it's Disney World and all, but uh, I wonder if they would want to be locked down for, uh, you know, potentially, I guess, what would it be? Probably a month and a half um, by the time yeah. they were allowed into the bubble. But for his sake, I hope Brad is able to, to work something out there. Totally. Because I feel like that's probably what kills him and the other coaches the most is that like, it's not like their kids are going to be, you know, at summer camp or doing their own thing. Like they're still quarantining too. So just like to not have that time has just got to really weigh on them. All right. Well, we will, we'll leave that there for now. Um, we're going to take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. When we come back, we're going to talk the NBA draft would have been today when you're listening to this. So we are going to review some of Danny Ainge's picks over the last five years. So we'll hear from Bet Online, and we'll be right back. There is no shortage of action going on at our exclusive partners, betonline.ag. Sports are slowly making their way back, and BetOnline is leading the way with the best odds and lines for all UFC, NASCAR, boxing, and soccer matches. And if you need even more, they have simulated NFL, NBA, and UFC simulations all day, every day, live on their website. Looking for something else other than sports? BetOnline has hundreds of casino games, poker tournaments, and prop bets to check out. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE for a free welcome bonus. That's one word, BLUEWIRE. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. All right, so today, Thursday, would have been the NBA draft. It's instead happening in October, but Tom is a, what's the right word? Draft? Enthusiast? Yeah, draft enthusiast. Maybe even stronger than that, but... Anyway, Danny Ainge has been quite shrewd with his picks over the past five years. And I feel like Danny is sort of known for just being a pretty strong negotiator. And I mean, he has a nickname, Trader Danny. But yeah, I still feel like sometimes he's sort of underrated. Like he drafted Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum. I mean, the Jason Tatum move to me still is extremely underrated. I think it might be just because it's too recent and Markel Fultz could still potentially develop. Anyway, Jalen Brown, like he's just, he's hit on a lot of picks. So we're just going to go year by year, starting with 2015. Smart was in 2014, so. Well, before we get into 2015, I did just want to note, I think we can just talk briefly about Smart. At the time, the Celtics had just not tanked because Brad Stevens wasn't about to let them like truly tank. Um, But they had definitely made sort of like an organizational decision to build through the draft and and maybe lose a bunch that first year. And, you know, that year, Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker were like the prizes of the draft, which was funny because then the number three pick was Joel Embiid. But those two guys were supposed to be like the stars that everybody wanted. And uh, I remember basically where the Celtics picked at number six was between Marcus Smart and Julius Randle. And everybody kind of knew that those were the two. I was bigger on Julius Randle at the time. I just thought it was interesting that Danny picked Smart, a guy who's just all about the winning plays and about making the right, the right decision on the court, making the right defensive play, but not like a superstar. And for the next like three or four years, the Celtics had Isaiah Thomas, who sort of became a superstar for them for that two-year stretch. But for the most part, they were a bunch of scrappy guys, kind of like Marcus Smart, who just won games. Like, they didn't have, like, a super-duper star. They didn't have, like, you know, your Kevin Durant, your Andrew Wiggins and Jabari Parker were supposed to be. Like, they didn't have that guy. All they had were a lot of guys like Marcus Smart who just, like, ground the other team down into a paste and then just eventually won a lot of games. So I thought it was interesting that Smart sort of set the tone for what the Celtics were for, like, the next, like, three or four years. Right. I wonder if Danny saw that at that time. I have to imagine he didn't. That would be like an, in, like an insane thing to sort of predict, 
this is probably you know, like, fair. <laughs> I don't I don't think the Celtics thought they were going to be like a playoff team the next year. Um, right. Okay. But, but regardless, it, it's wild. He does, as everybody notes all the time, embody what the Celtics stand for and what the type of basketball they want to play. So it, it's fitting that he was sort of the first pick to set everything up. Definitely. And then their second pick in that draft was James Young. So moving on. <laughs> One for two, Danny. All right. So 2015. Um, and I guess just something else that I'll know is they had so many picks. At this point in their, yeah, it was obscene how many picks they had. 2015 was really interesting for that reason. They had too many picks. You know, they had a bunch of second rounders. They had two first rounders. But I think one of the interesting things about 2015 was that that was the last year before some of those really big Brooklyn Nets picks started kicking in. So anyway, 2016, the Celtics at number 16 took Terry Rozier. Wait, 2015, 2015. 2015, I'm sorry. At number 16, they took Terry Rozier. At number 28, they took RJ Hunter. 33, the Celtics took Jordan Mickey. At, I believe it was, yeah, number 45, they took Marcus Thornton, but not the one that everybody knows. So kind of a weird draft, but some interesting, uh, interesting picks there. I guess, what do you make of, obviously none of those guys are still with the team, Terry Rozier had a real impact. Obviously, they liked R.J. Hunter enough to try to bring him back on a 10-day. What, what do you make of the 2015 class that Danny brought in? I think Danny has always had a bit of a soft spot for Terry. I think we've known that for a while. Rick Pitino has said that he wasn't shy about pushing Danny toward Terry because Terry played at Louisville for Pitino. Yeah. And Rozier worked out for the Celtics twice. He did this 55-shot shooting drill. And he extended his workout. He like went longer than he was supposed to just so he could do the drill again. According to Rick Pitino, Danny called and was like, is he always like this? Apparently Danny had never seen anybody do it again. And I feel like Terry sort of got this rep as somebody that just wanted to like get shots up and didn't really put in the work at all in Boston, especially as his tenure went on. But I think Terry, or I think Danny just developed a, a strong soft spot for him from the get-go and then the situation just didn't really work out in the end but he was able to get Terry like a fantastic deal with the Hornets and even though there was no value there I mean in terms of like trade value and stuff he never used it but Terry's trade value never seemed higher at the end of that 2018 playoff run a lot of people were floating his name around and rumors how legitimate those were I don't know but like if a deal were to come to fruition, it seems like the Celtics could get a pretty good package in return for him just because of how successful that 2017-18 playoff run was. For sure. And I would push back on you saying that it wasn't successful or that it wasn't, that it didn't work out in the end. I think it worked out great. You talk about like 2015 to 2019. So that's four years. That's a pretty good amount of time to have like a decent basketball player. And during that time, Rozier started off as like somebody who barely ever played, you know, didn't really seem like he was going to be anything developed into the starting point guard on a team that made the Eastern Conference Finals. And then in the end, he left because the Celtics brought in an all-NBA, all-star starter. That's a perfectly respectable stint with a team. No, to totally. I think, I think it worked out well for both parties, I think. Exactly. And ultimately, yeah. he got paid. I think maybe I'm just – I'll never forget one of his last press conferences. It probably was his very last one. Terry was like, I've been through some bullshit, guys, and I don't deserve this. So <laughs> I think he was just sort of upset at the end. He was, but I mean, everybody was upset, you know, at yeah. that point, like everybody, everybody kind of hated each other at that point. <laughs> like clearly like a lot of them got over it because some of them came back the next year, but like realistically, I don't think any of those guys wanted to see each other for a while at the end of that year. I think they were pretty ready. Even the guys who liked each other, I think they were ready to take a break from one another. So no, that's um, true. The only other thing I'll note about Terry is that according to Patino, Danny was calling him and saying that they were going to use him with the later first round pick with like the 28th pick. And Patino was telling him, no, Danny, there are teams that are going to take him at 24, 25, 26. Like you need to take him at 16. Yeah. Because otherwise he'll be gone. So I assume that influenced him a lot and he went for it. So that ties in the, the other thing that I wanted to touch on with this class was at the time, I thought the Celtics should take R.J. Hunter. He was the guy that I was, like, really zeroed in on because he was, he was a shooter, you know, allegedly. And, allegedly. <laughs> well, I mean, the funny thing about R.J. is that his shot always just looked so good. Like, it just looked like he was a shooter. And he had, like, a big tournament run. But when you go back and look at his stats from college, it's like, 
we probably should have seen this coming. He's like a shooter <laughs> who can't really shoot. Like I don't. So anyway, I, but I, I, I was really, I was a big believer in RJ. So I actually thought they should have taken RJ at 16 when they picked Terry. I was like, are you kidding? Like, what are you doing? Like, it just felt like such a reach. They had just drafted Marcus Smart the year before. It was like, this is a wild choice, Danny. It's funny now, if you, if you go through the rest of the guys from that class, Rashad Vaughn, Sam Decker, Jerry and Grant, DeLon Wright, Justin Anderson, Bobby Portis, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, Tyus Jones, Jarrell Martin, some dude named Nikola Malutinov um, that the Spurs drafted. I've never heard of him. Larry Nance, RJ Hunter, Chris McCullough, Kavon Looney. Like, Terry ended up being better than the rest of the first round. And there were a couple yeah. of guys in the second round who, you know, were very solid. Like, Montrez Harrell went 32 but he would have been a wild pick at 16. Josh Richardson went 40. He was definitely better than Terry, but like you're definitely not taking the number 40 guy at number 16. Like right, that, that right. was, that was a really, really good draft pick by Danny. The rest of that first round is really mediocre. Terry went to Charlotte and started averaging like almost 20 points. And you know, I'm, he's not a perfect player. He's not the most efficient, but he is a baller. Like he knows how to play basketball. Danny recognized that took him, you know, I think that's a really good pick. I will say Terry is also just like a very lovable guy. I mean, he has yeah. 12 blessings. Like I think the Celtics, especially with their 2019 class, they noted several times that they were concerned about character and things like that. I do think that they take that into consideration other years too. And Terry, he is a good guy. Yeah, I would agree with that. Just going through the rest of the first round, again, RJ Hunter, we talked about him. Jordan Mickey was a really interesting pick at 33. I, I know there were a lot of people that were surprised he was still around. He was the best shot blocker in his class at the time, and the Celtics needed rim protection. So I thought that was a really good pick, even though it didn't end up working out. And then Marcus Thornton, Danny picked him basically because he needed to stash somebody somewhere. He had way too many guys, and Marcus Thornton never really made it over here. Um, so shout out to the fake Marcus Thornton, and I think we can probably move on to 2016. <laughs> yes. So 2016, there was a lot going on. So much happened. <laughs> <laughs> so much going on. So... The Celtics drafted eight players. Is that correct? So I believe it was, yeah, I believe it was eight. They technically had eight draft picks. It was a, it was a busy night. Which is just <laughs> insane, yeah. So obviously most notable is with the third pick, they drafted Jalen Brown. And there's been some buzz, or I guess let's go through the rest of the picks first, and then we can go into Jalen. So Yabu obviously <laughs> was like a fan favorite. You could kind of see the vision. Um, when they picked him, um, Draymond Green was just kind of becoming like this really big thing. And people were starting to realize that uh, to be a good center, you didn't necessarily need to be seven foot one. Um, you could be a guy who had like smooth, good footwork and could move around. And that was never um, what Yabu ever turned into, but you kind of see what Danny was going for. And then they also picked Dante Zizic, again, guy who they were able to kind of stash, um, never really worked out. And ended up in Cleveland, and shout out to Zizic. I have no real takes on him. Deontay Davis, I remember it was funny when they picked him. I had been, like, telling everyone who would listen, they should really draft Deontay Davis. Like, I think, you know, he's like a – he had potential to be, like, a rim protector. He was, like, a, an interesting big man. They drafted him and then immediately dealt him out of there, and I was like, all right, well, whatever then. <laughs> I mean, that second round, it, it's interesting how many picks they had. They had too many picks. I felt like they couldn't make good selections. Like, they couldn't just take – the best player available, which honestly was kind of a problem because, okay, so the rest of the first round after Yabaselli wasn't very good. Like Pascal Siakam, certainly, but he was such a surprise. I don't think anybody could have seen that coming. When you get into the second round, there were several decent players that they ended up passing on. And I don't know if they were looking at them or not, but guys who in a normal year, they could have picked up like a really talented player like Malcolm I mean, Brogdon. Yeah, I was Patrick about to say McCall, Malcolm Brogdon, who was fit perfectly. Yeah, we've heard Brad Stevens say every nice thing under the sun about Malcolm Brogdon. He loves that guy. So I'm actually kind of surprised that he wasn't a guy that they looked at. But you know, even like somebody like Jake Lehman. The one thing I'll say about uh, Yabuselli is that I think he has developed a clothing line. So after the Celtics waived him, he just moved back to France and then I think signed a deal in China. Yeah. I have no idea what his stats were, but I assume he was getting buckets because that's what everyone does in China. But Anyway, I think he's developed this French clothing line called hors d'oeuvres. And Robert Williams either purchased items from this clothing line or Gershon sent him items from it. So regardless, though, they are still in communication or they still feel the need. Rob still feels the need to support Gershon or Gershon 
obviously still felt enough of a connection to send Rob these clothes because Rob was the only one who shared the clothes of the current Celtics. So if you see him in the locker room, I mean, if we're in the locker room next year and you see Rob wearing an hors d'oeuvre shirt, that's what that is. That's Yabu. Well, that's good intel. We'll see which one of us ends up uh, outracing the other one to, uh, to get to Rob and ask him about his, about his Yabu clothing line. So let's get into the, the impactful pick, Jalen Brown. So much surrounded that pick. At the time, the Celtics were in every Jimmy Butler rumor imaginable. And it certainly sounded like they were on the verge of drafting Chris Dunn and trading him to the Bulls for Jimmy Butler. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how Jalen got booed. I think that it's probably worth noting, and I think Jalen knows this, they weren't really booing the pick so much as they were booing the fact that Celtics fans knew that if they drafted Chris Dunn, that meant Jimmy Butler was coming, and they wanted, they wanted the star. Had the Celtics gotten Jimmy Butler, I, I would be curious to know how that would have affected Brad Stevens as a coach. Brad was like a young coach at the time. He'd only been in the league a couple of years. He'd only had one playoff appearance. Jimmy, obviously, is as strong-willed as they come. He's like, he has a vision for how he wants things to be, and if they are not like that, he is not happy. And it really seems like he ended up in the situation that he needed to be in down in Miami where Pat Riley really runs things the way that Jimmy Butler would like them to be run. But I think that would have been really intriguing. Obviously, that didn't happen. Instead, the Celtics picked Jalen. I have quote-tweeted myself entirely too many times because I was high on the pick. I also liked Jamal Murray at the time. But I I thought Jalen was a really good pick. I think when you watched him play in college, you could tell that he had the beginnings of a jumper. His form was not broken. It it looked pretty nice. He just kind of missed a lot. And obviously, he always had the athleticism. He always had kind of the the defensive potential. What I think nobody really knew, at least on the outside, was how hard he was going to work. There was all this really dumb talk about him being too smart, you know, which is not only dumb, but pretty racist. Jalen has worked and worked and worked. You can't help but like respect that. Like he went from a guy that was getting booed on draft night to a guy who played like an all-star in his fourth year. And I think that's really impressive. For sure. And I think just to set the stage, Ben Simmons and Brandon Ingram were both drafted ahead of him. And it's kind of crazy that the next year, the Sixers, Lakers, and Celtics all had the top three picks again. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't In that order. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know how many times that that's happened. That just set in for me. Um, I can't imagine it's happened before. <laughs> but, but no, I think there was also some buzz with Buddy Heald at the time. People thought that maybe the Celtics could draft him at three. See, I remember, I remember there being some Jamal Murray buzz. Him slipping to seven was a bit of an upset. Big moment for Denver. It, it, it's funny to look at, like, the top seven in this draft and how hard it dropped off after that. Like, especially, I mean, it dropped off pretty hard after three, even. And like, you know, Buddy Heald and Jamal Murray are, are fine players, but they are not, obviously, I don't think, Ben Simmons, Brandon Ingram, or Jalen Brown. Like, those, right. guys are, those guys are all all-stars. And maybe Jamal Murray sneaks into an all-star game or two. You know, I, I think that that's, like, really a top-heavy draft. Before the draft, you would have said that it was a top-heavy draft, like, one-two. Like, one-two were the obvious ones. And then Jalen managed to turn it into a, a one-two-three draft, which is pretty impressive. So 2017, obviously, I, I mean, I think the, 20, the 2017 draft is, just, is still just so interesting to me. Like, obviously, like the fault stuff was crazy that that didn't work out. The fact that LeVar Ball managed to bully the Lakers into taking his son number two, like not just like the number 17 pick, the number two pick in the draft. And like, I liked Lonzo. I thought he was a good player. The, the flaws in his game were just really obvious. Like, he couldn't run a pick and roll. He couldn't really shoot. Yeah, he does so many good things. He's, like, he's a very good defender, much better than you would have thought. He is an unbelievable passer. He's got a great, like, feel for the game. But he's a point guard who struggles to run the pick and roll and struggles to shoot. The fact that he went number two, even, like, when we knew all that is crazy. And then you start to go down the list, and there's some other, like, there's some other really talented players in addition to Tatum. I mean, De'Aaron Fox is nice. Jonathan Isaac is a good player. Donovan Mitchell, Bam Adebayo, obviously, like, really, really good players. These are all players, obviously, who were drafted in 2017, so they've proved themselves very quickly. They're also players like Frank Milikina that seems to have, like, a strong group of stands that think he could still develop, like Larry Markkinen. You know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. crazy. Like, these guys, like Bam, Mitchell, all the guys you mentioned, have already sort of established themselves in the league as budding superstars. And then there's also the guys who are like, no, just wait, like, two or three more years and just watch, you know? Yeah. For sure. Like such a well, crazy class. Well, for sure. And then the craziest thing is that 2018 surpassed them and then some, but we'll, we'll get there. Like 
the, the Tatum pick uh, obviously has proven to be everything the Celtics could have possibly hoped it would be. And, and it, it's been funny how along the way, Jason Tatum has been everything the Celtics needed him to be. Like, so his rookie year, they needed him to be like a, a go-to scorer in the playoffs. He became that. His second year, they needed him to be the um, piece that would have drawn Anthony Davis in a trade. And like, he was that. And now they needed him to take like the big step up and become a superstar. And he did that. He's just so integral to everything that is going on in Boston. So the, the 2017 class had a similar problem to 2016 where the Celtics just had like too many second round picks. They made one really good one and then another pick that uh, just ended up okay, not so being let's good. Say them. So they drafted Shemi yeah, so- Ojale, Kadeem Allen, and Jabari Bird all in the second yes. round. I mean, Shemi's still on the team. Look, Shemi, at number 37, I think Shemi's a great pick. I still think that there's a comfortable place in the league for Shemi Ojale. I think that he showed a lot this year. Defensively, he can do so many different things. Like, Shemi, Shemi's a really good second-round pick, and who I think is, is going to stick around for a while. Kadeem Allen, you know, has kind of poked around a little bit here and there. And, I mean, there was just, you know, I don't, I don't think there was any way that anybody could have known what was going on with Jabari Bird. He was friends with Jalen Brown. Um, you know, Jalen, obviously such a high character guy, like that came out of nowhere. So for those that might not have known, Jabari was on a two-way deal and then finally got converted to an NBA contract. And before the season even started, it was in September, he was arrested in Brighton, like right outside of Boston for a domestic violence case uh, against his girlfriend. And I don't think that trial has ever happened or it's been resolved yet, but pretty grueling police report. I won't go into any details and stuff, but it was just such an unfortunate situation for all involved and obviously the Celtics. It was not immediate, but they eventually did part ways and he has not returned to the league. The rationale they gave, I think, made some sense. The reason they didn't cut him immediately was they were kind of letting the investigation play out. But I think it was always pretty clear that, that he was gone. And I mean, yeah, like you said, when you, when you read kind of the, the police report, it's it's really horrific. So anyway, yeah, that so, so that draft, I mean, obviously, again, Celtics got a very useful player in the second round in, in Shemi, real star power at, at the front end. Pretty solid stuff all around. I think that Danny's move to trade down is still underrated. Like, I know it's gotten some credit, and maybe it's just it's still too early, and it's sort of out of respect to Markel Fultz. I don't know if I'm giving people too much credit there, but in that you can't write him off just yet, especially given – Are you giving people of, any respect? Then, yes, you're definitely giving them – Especially just given his whole backstory, it's, like, a little bit tougher than just it didn't work out in Philly. But, like, I just feel like that move – like. Literally nobody saw that coming, in my opinion. And to finesse another pick and to trick them into thinking that, you know what I mean? Just the whole thing. Like, I just feel like Danny deserves so much credit there in one, identifying that Tatum was the guy. And then two, just pulling off the deal. Again, maybe it's because it's too early, but I just feel like that move is just so underrated. Like Danny has developed a reputation by that point. He already did the deal with the Nets. I remember reading stories like because at that time Isaiah Thomas was still on the team and Markel Fultz went to Washington. So you see stories about the Washington coach talking about, oh, yeah, they'd be a great fit together. Like during the year, like well before the Celtics won the lottery, there were like, yeah, there were stories coming out about like Isaiah talking about watching Markel Fultz and everything like, yeah. There were pictures of Danny and Markel. Obviously, his visit, this was once. I was, I was going to bring that up. I think that what the Celtics, if, if they already knew that they were taking Tatum at that point, and I don't remember the timeline exactly, but if they already knew at that point, that was the most diabolical but brilliant thing the Celtics did Leak over a photo that stretch. Of Danny at was taking the photo, having Chipotle. Danny. Not only that one, it wasn't Chipotle. No, uh, they were at Chipotle. They were not at Chipotle because that was the reason that everybody said that they were not going to draft Markel was because Danny didn't take him to Chipotle. Um, <laughs> Where were they? I'm oh, not they were sure. at Be Good. They were I was going to say, good. I think it was Be Good. Yeah. You're right. Oh my God, yeah. that's funny. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, like that picture at Be Good. And then also the photo that they took, I think it was Markel like looking up at like the banners, which was pretty clearly like a staged photo. Like just one of those, like, look at who we're going to take. <laughs> and then like, you know, Danny starts to float, like, well, you know, we don't know who we're going to like. What a sequence. Like, I feel yeah, like that I, just deserves so much more credit. For sure. It's like, Danny has gotten lucky in the draft a few times. One of the things that we didn't mention was that back in, that we definitely probably should have, 
was the Justice Winslow year. Danny tried to trade an insane amount of stuff to get Justice Winslow, who's a perfectly fine player. That would have been, from all reports, that would have been the Jalen Brown pick. And then they would have Justice Winslow, a perfectly nice player, instead of Jalen Brown. So he has gotten lucky. But if you want to talk about, like, Danny, like, living up to his reputation, the Markel Fultz thing is it. Because he tricked everybody. Exactly. Not only did he trick people, but he, like, identified the right choice, too. Against every single, like, common thought about – because, like, everybody believed in Markel Fultz. Like, that guy was awesome. How was Markel Fultz not right-handed James Harden? Because, like, (laughs) he was right-handed James Harden. He was awesome. There were rumors about the Celtics and Jonathan Isaac. Like, like we talked about, this draft was good. So it's like, not only did he realize Markel Fultz wasn't the guy, he realized Tatum was the guy and tricked everyone. Like, it's just so... And, and this actually is one of the examples of when Danny may, like, may have gotten lucky. Josh Jackson was the guy who had a, was oh. tied heavily to the Celtics. Josh Jackson did not want to go to Boston, much like Jason Tatum, and uh, basically like blew off the Celtics for a, a workout. Stories differ on, on how that actually went down, but like it does sound like he did not have any interest in going to Boston and he kind of like left the Celtics out to dry. A couple years later, Josh Jackson has gotten in trouble for a lot of stuff and he, he was kicking around the G League a bunch this season. Like Josh Jackson would have been a disaster and instead the <laughs> Celtics have one of like the four most promising young players in the NBA. So with that said, let's, uh, let's move on to 2018 here. So, I, I mean, this was such a, such a loaded class. Uh, you can just go up and down it. And the fact that Luka Doncic, Sharon Jackson, and Trey Young went three, four, five is like bonkers. Like Wendell Carter still has plenty of potential. I hope that he ends up playing for a coach who appreciates him ever. Shea Gilgis Alexander, better than a lot of people expected coming out. Like this is a loaded, loaded class, which helps to sort of explain, I think, Robert Williams slipping to number 27. So there the were, Celtics there... had one pick, yes. the 27th pick overall. End of the first round. That's all you have to say there? All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I was just setting that up. Yeah. yeah, no. So Rob just kept slipping and slipping. And I mean, when you start to look at some of the names, like it makes sense. Like he was projected to go somewhere between like 12 and 15. The Clippers had two picks at 12 and 13, and they were reportedly interested in him. Instead, they take Miles Bridges. Um, and I believe he was part of some uh, a trade for them. And uh, Jerome Robinson, who hasn't really done much in the league so far. But then you start to go down, and it's like Michael Porter, Troy Brown, who's been okay for Washington, um, Zaire Smith, who people were really high on at the time, Dante DiVincenzo, who's been really good for Milwaukee, another guy the Celtics really liked in that draft, Lonnie Walker, Kevin Herter, another guy the Celtics loved in that draft. The Celtics actually had conversations about trading up to draft him. Josh Okoji, Grayson Allen. But, yeah, like Anthony Simons, Landry Shamit, like, a lot of really good players went before Rob. So it starts to make sense a little bit why he slipped. But even, even given all that, the fact that the exact type of player the Celtics needed, who was a lottery potential prospect, slid all the way down into the late 20s, kind of crazy. I mean, he wasn't even – he didn't have to go back to A&M for that second year. And he just chose to. So yeah. clearly he was draft ready. But, yeah, no, I remember that night – it was sort of surprising that he had dropped and immediately everyone was like, oh, he's dropped because of character concerns. The, the, the thing about the draft is that like people get spooked by dumb stuff. You have all this time to think about these guys as people. It's such an important decision for your franchise that like it's really easy to overthink something and make a mistake. I remember when Rob got drafted, um, one of the things that everybody talked about was how great it was going to be for him that he had Al Horford to kind of learn from. There was a lot of buzz about that before the season, and then nothing much came of it. And, like, I never really saw Al and, and Rob hanging out in the locker room or anything like that. When when Al left, I talked to Rob, and I was like, hey, I, do you remember when everybody was, like, kind of talking about how, like, Al was going to be, like, your mentor? Like, was that kind of overblown? Like, And Rob was like, no. Like, I needed him around. Like, he was amazing. He, he called me or, or texted me or something when he was going to leave and just said, like, hey, I, I'm leaving, but, you know, I wanted to wish you good luck and all this stuff. Like, it sounds like Al really was a big influence on, on Rob. And basically ever since that – I would say the same thing about Baines. I think both yeah. Tice and Rob would say that. Like, that big room seemed to have a good yeah. mentor, young player you relationship. Yeah, you don't get a whole lot higher character than, than Aaron Baines and, and Al Horford. Um, you know, Rob really seemed to take that all to heart. It's funny how much of a how much noise was generated from him missing that stuff and how it just really hasn't been an issue since then. Rob is just so the only word that comes to mind is like pure. You know how I know that's the only word that comes to mind for you is that you've used that word about him 
at least 500 times. <laughs> like he really just is so pure. And I think obviously, I mean, we have not seen his full potential yet. For him, I'm sure this season was tough with the injury and just not being able to yeah. be out there, especially because it seemed like there was a real opportunity and he did express an interest and hunger and sort of acknowledged like there was a chance for him to really establish himself and get like a, I don't know, 15 minute per game role or just really have an impact and yeah. I never really was able to come together. We'll see. I mean, Orlando's going to be funky anyway, but we'll see sort of how he's used. I'm curious to see, especially if he's healthy, where he fits in, especially also playoff stage, like if they'll even turn to him and stuff like that, or whether it will be like, okay, we're going to reset the next year. Like let's try and integrate Rob. I'll be interested too, to see, like, I think it's really possible that he ends up like, I mean, we, we don't know what's going to happen with Ennis Cantor. I think it's very plausible that he moves on with his player option next summer. Um, and if that's the case, I think, you know, then the Celtics, like, big rotation is pretty well set. Next year is going to be very important for Rob because it's going to be his extension year. But I think it'll be really important for Rob from multiple angles. Daniel Tice has another season on his contract. After that, I think there's a good chance that he has outplayed like, he, he may have played so well that he's going to be out of the Celtics' price range after that. Clearly a starting center in the league, and that's a valuable player. You know, I think next season, Rob is going to have a real chance to be the backup center, but, like, a backup center with an eye on the future. Um, yeah. So the Celtics, they need a lot more from him defensively. Um, he is in the wrong place a lot. Um, he makes up for it because he is just an unbelievable athlete. Um, but he's, he is not ever where he's supposed to be um they need him to be in better position they need him to be better moving his feet like all that stuff needs to happen but that potential is there and he could be a starting center like that could happen down the road for sure and I think that's what the Celtics are hoping for like I do think that there yeah. is a level of investment on their part that they're really hoping that this pans out and it would work perfectly as you just laid out with their timeline so if he can use next year as sort of his real minutes, getting that experience, and then sort of blossoming from there, like that would be ideal. So I think I would say that for the 2019 draft, we probably don't need to go too far into it just because like we don't really know anything yeah. about it yet. Like the guys the Celtics picked barely played this year because they're on a tough team to break into the rotation with. After one year, are there guys you would have taken instead of the guys the Celtics took? And I still, I still think that Romeo is going to be a good player. I think that after one year, I would have taken – and. I said this at the time, I would have taken Brandon Clark at 14. Plenty of time for Romeo to be a good player. Brandon Clark is really freaking good. He is nice. And I think he's going to be a really important piece for uh, Memphis for a lot of years. Like, I, I like Matisse Tybel. I think he's going to be a good player. I think, I think it's too early to say for sure that, like, he would have been the right pick over Romeo. Romeo's so much more developed offensively. Obviously, you know, Tybel's a menace defensively. But I think it's too early to call that one. Is there anybody on this list that you're like, man, the Celtics should have uh, definitely should have snapped that guy up? No, I mean, Brandon Clark is the obvious one. Other than that, I mean. I will say the one other guy that I think they, they missed on, I get it because there were some questions about him, but I thought Kevin Porter, you, you may remember me like yelling at you and Corrales about how much I like Kevin Porter. Oh, yeah. He had a really good first season. He's probably, he might be like the most promising prospect on that Cavs team. They could have obviously gone with him, but pretty good draft, all things I considered. Mean, like, yeah, like you said, it's, a little early. I think Grant Williams is proving to be like a great choice. I didn't mean to pass directly over Grant Williams. Yes, <laughs> definitely. Grant was a good pick at 22. And like, I think his value, again, this is just his first year, but like he could prove to be very valuable in the playoffs um, just in terms of offering anything from the bench. I, I think after this draft, the most buzz was about Carson Edwards just because of sort of his tournament run and he's a shooter and a volume shooter and people love points and like there just seemed to be the most hype around him. So I'm curious to see sort of where his trajectory goes. Let's give Carson some time here. He played pretty <laughs> well in, in Maine when he went up there. Like, like I, I think that when you look at and Carson knew this too, like if you talk to him before the season, he would say like, yeah, I mean, summer league, like they just gave me the green light to do literally whatever I wanted. Like that clearly was not going to be the case on a team. And I think for him, that's tough because he has spent his entire career being the guy who had the ultimate green light. He had to do something completely different. And I think any shooter will tell you that like, when it's like, okay, I need you to take the right shots at the right time. And before this, your entire role has been like, every time I touch the ball, I don't care where I'm at. I'm looking at the hoop. I might chuck that thing. That's such a hard transition to go back to because like the thing that you're comfortable with is the thing that your coach is like, don't do that. And if you do that, you're going to the bench. Like it's so hard to get into right. any kind of rhythm. So especially I, I, Brad Stevens 
Yeah. System. Yeah, Brad Stevens on this defense. team. There was not going to be any like, go ahead and develop. I'm <laughs> like, that's, that's not what this team was about. So I felt for Carson this year. You know, I think that there, there's still plenty of potential there. There's still plenty of reason to think that he, that he could be, you know, a very serviceable player in the NBA. Um, and then obviously the other one that talk about is Tremont Waters, who like, I think he'll be on the, the roster in Orlando. I think that he'll, you know, be a, a part of the team next year. I'll be curious to see if he replaces Brad Wanamaker next mm. year. Obviously Brad is uh, is a free agent. I don't know what Brad Wanamaker's market is going to be, which is, is funny because for a long stretch this season, he was a 50, 40, 90 guy. So I, I, I'll be curious to see where, what price point he's at as a free yeah. agent this summer. I, I will be curious to see if, if Tremont kind of takes over that third guard, still gets some, some real minutes, like is actually in the rotation um, type role um, that basically – Marcus Smart being a stretch six sort of opens up for him. I could see that happening. So we'll see what happens. Um, all that said, Danny made some good calls via the draft. I think he's really put together the core of the future, and that's pretty impressive. Exactly. That's what I think is so impressive is this is like a homegrown team, for lack of a better term. Like he really – it's not like they traded for a superstar. Like, of course they tried. They were in on a, a lot did. of rumors with AD, Jimmy Butler, Paul George, like – Kawhi they were definitely active in terms of considering those deals but it's amazing that how everything ended up coming together is really via the draft and looking forward I mean the other thing to keep an eye on once play resumes if play resumes is that the Grizzlies could potentially get bounced from the playoffs which would mean the Celtics could potentially get their pick so their pick could hang on for another year so we'll see what happens at which point it would be unprotected. Right. I think the one other thing that I will say about Danny's drafting, I think that one thing we've learned is for a long time, I thought that the character was sort of overrated. Um, like I was just like, you know, like, why don't you just pick like the most talented guy? Like, you know, like why don't we, like I get that it's a team, but why not pick the guy who's like good at hooping? Character goes beyond just, are you a good guy? It's also like, are you going to work your butt off to become like the best basketball player you can become? Because like, obviously you're an NBA prospect, Obviously, you have tools. Obviously, you have potential. Are you going to maximize that? I think one of the things the Celtics have done is, is try to find guys who are going to maximize that. I think that's part of the reason why this has worked. You know, they found Jalen yeah, Brown, who, who has maximized himself. Found Jason Tatum, who's, who's pretty clearly, you know, maximizing himself. And that's one of the bets that I think the Celtics made in 2019. Grant Williams is probably going to maximize himself. Everything that we know about Carson Edwards' character is that Carson Edwards is going to do everything he can to maximize himself. And I think that that's, it's very hard to know who has that. If you, if you know anything about players' characters, it's probably a decent bet that the Celtics are going are gonna to take somebody who they think is going to become the best version of the player that they could be. For sure, for sure. All right, guys. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you all so much for listening. We definitely appreciate it. Please leave us a five-star review. Uh, please leave us a nice little note. We appreciate everybody who has done that so far. And we will talk to you on Monday. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.